Today I'm beginning a new series, Flourishing, and I want to look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called, say it with me, the children, come on one more time, the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. And then verse number two is pregnant with revelation. I want you to hear this. Beloved, now are we the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And there are any number of interpretations or ways that verse number two could be, uh, as it were, exegeted. One is, is that uh, when we see him, when he returns, we'll become like him. That's the common eschatological theology that seeing him, we become like him. But there are other levels of understanding as well. One is, is that the more he's revealed in your life, the more you see him, the more you become like him. And there's even this understanding is that his word is given to us, and therefore, verse 3 says, we're purifying ourselves. And when he is revealed, that we're going to, realize that we are like him. There are any number of potential understandings or meanings in this verse, and uh, I want to talk to you today, uh, beginning the series, as I mentioned, flourishing, and I want to share with you some things that I think will help you. How do you experience a life that is flourishing? We talked about being planted and fruitful. And when I talk about a life being that is flourishing, I'm talking about your relationships flourishing, your finances flourishing, your health flourishing, your relationship with God, the single most important relationship you will ever have in the course of your life. How does that flourish? How do you make your ministry flourish in all the other areas of your life? How do you experience that? I believe that a big part of being able to flourish is to first discover who you are in God. I want to speak today from this subject, from milk cartons to the throne room. Milk cartons to the throne room. Father, I do ask that you would come and talk to us today and open your word and help us to grasp the meaning of your word, the value of the truths that are hidden within it, and that we would be hungry enough that we would come like little children to the table ready to eat what you have placed before us and put ourselves in a place where your word can begin to mold your character in us. I ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Most of us have seen these heart-wrenching pictures of children who are missing 
on the sides of milk cartons. How many of y'all know what I'm talking about? Everybody's seen those. They don't use those as much anymore. My understanding is, is they think the first time it ever occurred at Derry in Wisconsin, a child had been abducted and was missing, and it was so profoundly impacting to the community that the local Derry actually put the photo of that small child on the side of the milk carton of the milk that they were selling in the local stores, and it caught on. And it swept across the nation, and others began to do that. Um, now with Facebook and, um, and Instagram and all these other things out there and, and uh, some of the more up-to-date alert warning systems like the Amber system and television and so forth, being uh, able to broadcast this almost instantaneous with the event that is occurring, they don't necessarily use the milk carton thing as much as they once did. But you can't look at a picture like that without something being profoundly stirred within you. First of all, there's the natural empathy that we would all have for a child that has been abducted and our fear about what might be happening to them. And then at a deeper level, our concern that somebody even exists in society that could do something like this to a child that then makes our own children, our grandchildren, become vulnerable and at risk. Most of these children, if not all of them, are children who were abducted. That is to say, they didn't wander away. They didn't stray. They didn't become lost. They didn't forget their way home from school. Someone stole them, to put it frankly. They were either lured away and taken or simply snatched and this is profoundly disturbing, is disturbing to us. And at another level, I believe at a spiritual level, there is something in that that we subconsciously identify with that I'll talk about. Uh, some of the people that, that were gone for a long time, J.C. Lee Dugard, who was abducted at the age of 11 and found almost 20 years later, and you see this young girl that did one moment is happy with her family, the next it's disappeared. There was Julian Hernandez abducted at the age of five and found 13 years later. And there are the photo photos of how he looked at the age of five, the day he was abducted, and then at the age of 18 when he applied for a university in the state of Ohio and somebody going through the records realized that this is a, the same person that was abducted. I think it was back in Alabama many years ago. And they had run across evidence to that effect. And, and he was found. And then there was Sarah Cecilia Finkelstein. And she is shown with her mother. She had been abducted at the age of four. And amazingly... At the age of 13, she was sitting at her breakfast table, this is years after being abducted, sitting at her breakfast table eating breakfast, and she had seen these photos of missing children on the side of milk cartons before, and as she was eating her bowl of cereal, she was flabbergasted and shocked to discover that the photo on the side of the milk carton she had just poured milk out of into her bowl of cereal was her own photo. She didn't even realize she had been abducted. 
After years of being abducted, you see her there being reunited with her mother. There was Steve Carter, who was six months old when he was abducted, and he found out 34 years later while doing research on the internet that he had been stolen, and there he is as a grown man 34 years after his abduction, now having to process all of this. Years after being abducted, a number of these people have come to discover who they really are. And they have, upon being found, upon discovering the truth, it turns out that they had all been lied to and their identities had actually been stolen. They were given different identities by their abductors and told reasons that as a child they just accepted because it was an adult telling them this. For example, some were told their parents had died and others that their parents were actually very bad people and were going to have to change your name because they're wanting to harm you and for your own protection and I've been sent by the state to try to help you or whatever and all kind of stories fabricated down to minute detail that a little child is not able to navigate through on their own intellectually and they accept it as reality and years go by and then wham on the internet one day 34 years later you discover you're not even who you think you are it wasn't until after they were rescued that they found out the truth and learned their real identity and after discovering who they actually were they all without exception preferred to take back their true identities and not live under an assumed identity any longer they wanted to be who they were first born and created to be none of them I haven't found a single one of them wanted to live the lie any longer discovering upon discovering that it was a lie they wanted to move beyond that and get back to the truth can you imagine the adjustments that are necessary for someone to go through that has lived a lie for 34 years been told they were one person and yet they were somebody else I mean, my heart goes out to these people as a pastor having to work with people through all kinds of, of problems where they struggle in I, their own identity. I can't think of anything that would be more profoundly difficult to wrap your mind around than to discover as you are now grown that you're not even who you were told you were. And they have to go through the pain and the adjustment and the changes necessary in their thinking to correct all of this and stuff you were told you now have to reevaluate all of it you can't take anything for granted anymore and and you don't know what you were told is true or not true your whole way of looking at life is now subject to examination that you should not be forced to have to go through and can you imagine the years it will take to undo all of this I can tell you that in, according to what psychologists say, some of them will never live long enough to completely outlive the negative effects that they have experienced in having their identity stolen. They're going to have to go through counseling and, and they're going to have to go through effort and it's going to cost them and they're going to have to go through seasons of conflicting emotions and anger and betrayal and all of that and even depression that so much of their life has been a lie 
But there is without, as I said, exception, none of them that said, that's too great a price for me. I'll just continue to live the way that I was living before I discovered the truth. And when I look at this, uh, it kind of sounds like what happened to humanity, doesn't it? Way back years ago when a stranger abducted us from God. Oh, let me talk to you right now. And we were made in his image and likeness, and Satan came along, and in spite of what Daddy said, we took the candy and got in the wrong car anyway. Are you, am, I, am I relating to anybody? And just like they had been lied to and told their parents were dead, some of us have been raised in situations where we've been told Daddy isn't even real and he doesn't exist. I got another movie coming out right away, and that is God is Not Dead Part 2. You, you, you saw the first one, and it's become popular right now in a lot of areas to believe that God doesn't even exist, and all of that is the concerted effort of the enemy who abducted us trying to convince us that our father wasn't even there for us to begin with. He's a figment of our imagination. And, and then for those of us who do believe in God, what do we have to struggle with? We've got to struggle through the lies that God is somebody other than who he really is and, and that God is this and God is that and he's anything but the God that the Bible declares him to be that we should serve. We gave up our identities when we were stolen. And we have lived under assumed aliases and false identities ever since. And this is why when you read the Bible, you will find that over and over again, God is trying to communicate an important truth. You are the children of God. I don't care what somebody else told you. You're my kid. Is what God is saying. Don't care what the devil tried to tell you or lie to you. I know who you are. You're mine. I'm the one that made you. Hello, somebody. Amen. You were stolen from, from me. And, and, and God is trying to correct this. This is why John says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It doesn't yet appear what we shall be. We had not got rid of the negative programming yet. I mean, we still believe stuff that we shouldn't believe, and we've been told stuff that we're going to have to sort through and evaluate and reassess and, and make new judgments about. But right now, we are the sons of God, and, and we may not understand Daddy's heart just yet, but we're still his son. We're still his daughter. I wish I could hear somebody in the building say, that's right. And so when you get saved, it begins the process, as it were, of you being found. Amen. You're discovered, and you, you are brought back to your real parent, which is God. But it doesn't mean that you think like him yet, and doesn't mean that you really know who you are yet. And that's why the Bible is so critically important. I, I marvel at people who think that Christianity and being saved is an add-on to their life. You know, I got my life, and now then I got saved. I'm adding on that on to everything else in my resume. No, you're not. It's remaking everything in your resume. It's got to rewrite your history. You understand? It can't be secondary to anything. Who you are actually has to come out of finding out what God made you to be. Anything else other than that is a lie. Amen. 
And there are two kingdom truths that perhaps more than any others have helped me better understand personally how God intends for mankind to live the abundant or the extraordinary life or to flourish. These two truths have positioned me to grow in my own understanding of the kingdom of God and what it means in my personal development. The first of these two great truths that have profoundly impacted my own life and the reason why so much of my teaching focuses on this kind of thing is that the kingdom of God, listen to me, is about a way of thinking. Just like when you're in this family that abducted you and they told you their own, that you are their own, but you're not. And they told you you belonged to them, but you didn't. When you get back with your real family, you got to now unlearn some stuff. And you got to learn how things are in this family over here. Come on, am I relating right now? And in similar fashion, the kingdom of God is about focusing on a way of thinking. It's a higher and more perfect way of looking at life than the perspectives that we were indoctrinated to embrace as, as the son of the other guy that we really weren't. Paul spoke of our need to be accepted and to fit in. And everybody makes mental adjustments and jumps through mental hoops that other people put in front of them so that they can be accepted by people. We all do that. We don't like to admit it. And some of us, it's a little more obvious than it is to others. But rather, that's our society at large or the particular social group with which we best identify, the one that mirrors to us our value. We make little adjustments along the way so that we can fit in and be accepted. Paul warned that when it came to thinking as it relates to kingdom things, we must not allow that to happen to us. You don't make mental adjustments and tweak your thinking to fit into the world. Romans 12 and 2, he said, rather, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let me say it like this. We literally were born citizens of the kingdom of God, citizens of heaven. We were born, as, as John said, and I've already mentioned, the children of God. But somewhere along the way, we got associated with another kingdom, a fallen kingdom that's ruled by somebody else. And Ephesians 2.19 tells us, now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. When you get saved, you get found. Oh, that's why I love that song, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm Found. God found me. Amen. Daddy never quit looking for me. Amen. Kept my picture on the side of the milk carton until he could find out who took me and where I was at. But now that we're found, he said, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members, oh my God, of the household of God. Did you get that? I not only am a citizen of the kingdom of God, I'm actually a part of the royal family. Did, you, did that get communicated to you? 
Here's one of the things that's going on in the world we live in. Becoming a citizen in any country and embracing and submitting to the government of that nation actually means being willing to lay aside the beliefs about how government was done where you came from. Amen. If you're going to be in a new country and apply for citizenship, they might have a different form of government. They have a different constitution. What you don't do is take your old form of government with you and your old constitution and move into this new country and apply to become a citizen and now tell them how they're supposed to run things. Am I making any sense right now? Amen. What you have to do is try to understand the language and the culture and the governmental system of the country you have now been accepted in. Amen. And that works in life and people unwittingly will come into the world and they'll try to change the church to fit their understanding. They'll, they'll try to change their marriage to fit the way life was. You know, we all carry this, these presuppositions with us. Amen. Does it ever work out well? You ever seen it work out well? I never have. Amen. You get married and you set about trying to change that little lady, I just promise you, you're going to find out real fast that's not what's supposed to be happening in a marriage. You can say, Mama used to do it this way all you want, but I I promise you, you're not going to be very happy from that moment forward because when Mama's not happy, nobody's happy. Uh Uh-huh. And you need to let go where you came from and learn to live where you now are. I personally don't believe in nation building. I don't want to get into politics, but I'm going to tell you something that distresses me. It seems like everywhere we as a nation have tried it. It's blown up in our face. I'm serious. From the Far East and Vietnam to Cuba to Nicaragua to the Middle East and everywhere else we stick our nose in. If we go about trying to tell them they've got to change their government to be like ours, have y'all noticed that hadn't worked out real well? Amen. I tell you what, somebody said it like that. There was a rat infestation in the Middle East. Amen. And so we killed the cat named Saddam Hussein to get rid of the rat infestation. (laughs) Didn't work out real well, did it? Now, whatever problems we have around the world, there's a way to address it. That's just my opinion. uh, That's not from the Bible. If you don't believe what I just said, that's fine. We're still friends. Get out of the boat and paddle a little while. Amen, because I don't demand you accept my, my, my political beliefs, but I will tell you this, that if you come from another country that has a different form of government and want to be a citizen in another country, what you need to do is let go of the way you thought about government when you come into that new country. Otherwise, just stay where you are. Amen. I read some of these studies about Detroit wants Sharia law. Hello. That's not what our founding fathers died to bring to this nation. And forgive me, I'm going to just talk. I may upset some folk. Y'all pray for me. I need the prayers. You need the practice. Amen. And it'll benefit everybody involved, okay? But that's not what God envisioned for us to do in the kingdom of God either. We came out of the kingdom of darkness. We weren't supposed to come into the kingdom of God and then go about trying to tell him how to run his own house. It requires a changing of the mind. Amen. Oh, I'm talking to you. Why do you think they're having all these problems right now in places like Paris and Brussels and 
other places and all of these terrorist attacks come to find out they're enclaves where people live and they live according to the law of the country they came out of. The same thoughts. They never tried to be assimilated. And countries sometimes may mean well by offering people uh, the opportunity to become a refugee. But you don't just give them a check and a place to stay. You better help them learn some stuff too. Amen. Or that could end up being a problem somewhere later down the line. Amen. Similarly, when you come into the kingdom of God, we should not seek to try to understand it or its values by holding on to the perspectives of the kingdom out of which we just were delivered and translated. You can't look at the kingdom of God and say, I don't believe this and I don't believe that. If you don't believe it, that, that's not going to change what the kingdom is. You need to change your thinking to reflect the kingdom is what I'm trying to say. And where do all these Christians come from in this modern age that have forgotten what I'm talking about right now? Because if you want to know what's at the root of much of our trouble in so-called Christian America is we got Christians that are going through the Bible saying, I don't really think this is necessary and I'd change this if I could and I don't believe this is required. And that you go to changing stuff, who gave you the right to do that? You're not king. Who died and made you king? He's still king of kings and lord of lords. And we do not have the prerogative to come into his house and tell him how to run his own home. Amen. In fact, our very conversion has got to begin with repentance. And I'll show you what that means. Acts 2.38, they came to Peter and they asked what they should do. And then Peter said to them, say it with me, repent. Say it out loud. Shout it out. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The word for repentance is metanoia. What does it mean? I don't even know that many believers understand what repentance really is. Because what it means is to change your mind or way of thinking. Amen. Meta. You change these thoughts in your mind. Metanoia. You've got to change your outlook. What God said is this. You don't even start getting saved until you first are willing to start changing the way you think. So all these folk get into church thinking the way they used to. Well, you just do the math on that one and see how that equation works out. What God wants us to do is bring into captivity every thought. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. How do you pull down strongholds? Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself. Oh, my God. Against the what? Against the what? The knowledge of God. How do you do that? By bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. you got to bring your mind under control. Amen. And so people live with all of these issues in their life. Depression and anger. How do you get rid of the anger? You bring those thoughts under control. Amen. You're in a different kingdom now. Oh, I'm talking to you. 
1 Corinthians 2, 15 through 16, but he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? And what Paul is simply asking is, you're going to come in here and tell God what to do? You're going to tell God what you know? Let's see, let's see how much you know. And he's going to tell you like Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And carved out the, the, the canyons with my fingertips and filled the ocean with the palm of my hand and cast stars from my fingertips. Where were you when all that was going on? You're going to tell me how to run my house. Amen. Paul said we have the mind of Christ. I'm going to say something that's going to shock you. But we often refer to the new birth. How many of you know what I'm talking about when I say the new birth? Okay. Do you know it's not called that in the Bible? Think about it. There's not one place in the Bible that identifies it as the new birth. It says we become new creations, we become new creatures, and I'll explain that in a moment. What Jesus told Nicodemus is you've got to be born again. We're the ones that added the adjective new. Personally, I believe what Jesus was telling Nicodemus was, I found you. Your picture was on the side of the milk carton. And now you've got to be born back into the image. You've got to become who I made you to be to start with. What we call the new birth is actually becoming what we were created to be in the first place. You were made in the image and likeness of God Almighty. Amen. And what we have accepted is a voluntary reduction of our identity, a limiting of ourself. And we think that being born again means that we actually start all over. No, what it means is you, you, daddy's taking you back home now. Amen. You're not being born. Um, it's not the new birth in the sense of that you're becoming new. You were who you were born to be. Watch this now. But it's new to you. You're going to have to go home and think about that for a while. I messed up some of your theology so bad just then. Because daddy's known who you were from the beginning. Before I formed you in your mother's belly, I knew you and ordained you to be a prophet. Tell me that's not in the Bible. Oh, I'm talking to you. God knew what you were made to be before you ever discovered life as we know it. And the enemy has warped and stolen and twisted your identity. And God said, it's time to get you back on track. I want to move you from the milk carton to the throne room. Now are we the sons of God. Right now. We're not going to be. We're already that right now. We're already that. Doesn't yet appear what we shall be because we're going through this process. And that comes to the second thing about the kingdom. The first being that it is a changing of the way you think. The second foundational truth that I learned about the kingdom of God that has really helped me is that the kingdom is about processes. It's not about sudden or instantaneous events. Now, everyone who looks at the kingdom of God looks at the events, and one can incorrectly conclude that the kingdom of God is all about miraculous events and occurrences and, and extraordinary happenings and supernatural things taking place. When the kingdom first began to come to us, it was accompanied by 
incredible events and has been ever since. Events such as a virgin giving birth to a child, that child being named Emmanuel or God with us, and the raising of the dead uh, like Lazarus, the healing of the lame and the leper and the blind, and the kingdom continued with events such as the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension and, and the upper room. And of course, there are many other miracles recorded in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And Paul mentions in his writings the extraordinary occurrences that took place in his ministry that defied understanding 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 5, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom, oh God, do you see that? Of men, it's the wisdom of men, it's this fallacious thinking, it's this identity they told, they gave to us, that got us into this mess to start with. But he said that your faith should be in the power of God. Throughout the history of the church, the advancing of the kingdom has always been and always will be accompanied by these miraculous supernatural things that are incredible demonstrations of the spirit of the mighty God that we serve. There have been more of these events at some times than at others and more in some places than at, in others. For example, people will often ask me why are there are so many miracles overseas and not as many here. And we in America would arrogantly think it's because we're so scientific we are not easily fooled. And it could be that it might just be the same thing that's happened throughout history that the number of miraculous events that occur is directly related to the degree of spirituality of the church that exists at that time and how dedicated it is to God and is predicated upon its faith and integrity in either that place or that time. Amen. Amen. A guide in the Vatican once remarked to a group of visitors that he was showing through the Vatican. The, he, he showed them the wealth of the church with its art, its statues, its paintings, its buildings, its gold, its silver, its treasure, treasuries. And then he laughed and said, the church could no longer say, silver and gold, have we none? But in that group of visitors he was showing around was St. Francis of Assisi. And he spoke up and responded, and neither can she say, take up your bed and walk either. Amen. Indicating there are seasons in the church and places maybe and times when the church is not as, as reliant upon God, as committed to God, doesn't have the, the values or the character of God. And maybe that's why we don't see as many miracles. Maybe that's one reason see as much of it even in America because we think we've outgrown the need for God. But as I pointed out, there will always be miraculous events wherever God's at. I mean, his nature is supernatural. And, and so don't be surprised when the supernatural occurs. But that's not, I want to emphasize, that is not what the kingdom of God is about. It's not about those events. The kingdom of God is rather about processes. These two foundational premises have changed my life. One, that it is a way of thinking. And secondly, that it's about processes rather than events. When I say processes, I mean, for example, in the Bible. You will find that the Bible over 
And over refers to processes such as the refining of gold or of silver, where the gold and silver are mel melted and the impurities skimmed away until the refiner can see his own face in the purified metal. And when he can see himself in the molten metal, that's when he knows it's free from impurities. Amen. The psalmist in the 12th Psalms mentions seven different stages of purification in the furnace. In the Bible, there's also the process of the harvest. One one sows, Paul said, another waters, and God gives the increase. In Mark chapter 4, the Bible speaks of the three-stage process of maturing the harvest by pointing out that first there is the blade, then the ear, then the full corn. In the ear, there's also the four-step process of converting the harvest to bread. Count them. First, the grain is reaped, then separated from the chaff at the threshing floor. Number three, ground into flour, and number four, baked into bread and served. There's also the process of the treading of grapes and its conversion to wine and, and the process of the oil. The Bible is full of these and all of these are analogies that are used in the Bible to describe the work of the Spirit of God within our hearts. Notice that none of these things describe instantaneous change, which means that when you get found and you get discovered, you now got to go through the process of finding out who you really are. Just somebody telling you your name is not Bill Smith, it's actually this, and they give you your true name, doesn't mean all of a sudden all of the blanks have now been filled in. Doesn't mean that your thinking is instantly changed to reflect the thinking of God. But when you embrace these two foundational kingdom truths that the kingdom is is about the way you think and it's about processes they initiate and begin the process of your transformation amen it will be followed by the embracing and learning of many other kingdom truths that the that the Holy Spirit will guide and lead you through until your mind literally I want you to hear me reflects the thinking of God now, when I say reflects the thinking of God, don't think I'm being arrogant. I'm not. I don't mean that we are as smart as him. We never will be. And I don't mean that we know as much as he does because we don't. And I don't mean that we won't make mistakes because we will. Amen. Rather, I mean what Paul said in the verse I just read to you a few minutes ago that says, we have the mind of Christ. It, uh, there we go. A little bit slow getting it up there. Amen. We have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2 and 16. These two kingdom truths are the principles upon which all other kingdom truths are predicated and built. If you do not grasp these two, you never move beyond where you are in life, in your relationship with God, nor do you experience the extraordinarily blessed life. And so I'm going to close. I'm actually beginning, starting next Sunday, a series on the nine fruit of the Holy Spirit. Why am I going to talk about the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Because I told you things are work in process, right? Watch this now. You see, because the thoughts you think <laughs> become attitudes. And attitudes determine your emotions. Oh, I need somebody to say amen. And you act out of your emotions, so you might say that thoughts become attitudes, become emotions, become actions. Mm -hmm. And actions repeated become a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. 
And if you want to change the lifestyle, you don't start by changing the action. You go all the way back to the thought over here. And that's where it has to begin. And this is why the Bible is profound in its understanding and relating to us of our own nature. We were made in his image and likeness, but Satan stole you away. But I got news for you. Every day he lied to you, you were still daddy's kid. Amen. You still belong to your heavenly father. Oh, yeah. Amen. And that's why you have to repent. Change your mind. Amen. The things you used to love, you have to say, uh-uh, no more. And the things you used to hate, you have to say, give them to me, God. Amen. And I'm not talking about things you hate because they're not good for you. You don't like them. There's no life like the Christian life. There's no life like the child of God. The life he lives, amen. But what I'm talking about is on Friday night, you don't sit at home wrestling with the desire, am I going to go party tonight? You know why you don't wrestle with that? Because you step back a few other steps and change your thought. And you said, that's ruining my marriage, and that's ruining my life, and that's ruining my finances. It all goes back to you got to start where the problem began, and that's in the way you think about life. And you know why so many of us are reticent to accept that because it strikes at the very core of our pride. We think we're smart. <laughs> Come on, you know I'm telling you the truth. Amen. And you got an insight nobody else has, right? And you see things other people don't see. If they just knew what you knew, amen. And yet God says, as the heavens are high above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. Let go of that stuff and find out who you really are. And so when I talk about the fruit of the Spirit, why is the fruit of the Spirit important? Because once you develop your, his thoughts, then you begin to develop his emotions. And once you develop his emotions, then you will begin to grow in you his character. And once you do grow in you his character, he don't mind giving you his power. Amen. And that's the process the church has got to go through. Do you want to live the supernatural life? It all begins with changing your thoughts.